I just started to look at life as a whole and know that loss is part of life. It's not separate from life. It, I experienced it a young, at a young age. I was about 40. But loss is part of life. And to know that you can hold both sorrow and joy together. And that slowly, slowly dawned on me that I would always miss Elizabeth enormously. But she taught me a lot about grace. She handled her illness extraordinarily well. Hello, and welcome to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. This podcast is about exploring the grief that occurs at different times in our lives, in which we have had major changes and transitions that literally shake us to the core and make us experience grief. I created this podcast for people to feel a little less hopeless and alone in their own grief process as they hear the stories of others who have had similar journeys. I'm Kendra Rinaldi, your host. Now, let's dive right in to today's episode. We will be listening to Faith Fuller Wilcox's story, Faith is an author, and she has a book that actually will be launched tomorrow as we're recording this. Uh, She is the author of the book, Hope is a Bright Star, a Mother's Memoir of Love, Loss, and Learning to Live Again. And um, we will be hearing her story. She's also authored a book called Facing into the Wild, a Mother's Healing After Death of Her Child, which is a poetry book. So, Faith, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm so grateful you are here. And we were just chatting before we started recording that we you live where I've lived before. So uh, share with the listeners where you live, a little bit about your your life, and, and then we'll navigate your grief journey and hearing about your daughter, Elizabeth, and so forth. Yes, I live in a suburb west of Boston, and I've lived here for, oh, about 30 years now. Um, This is a part of the world that I like very much, and um, I am married and have a wonderful golden doodle dog, and I have a daughter, um, a surviving daughter, uh, who is now 35 years old, and I started my journey of this particular difficult time 21 years ago when my daughter Elizabeth was diagnosed with a rare bone cancer called osteosarcoma. This was a huge shock to us. Initially, she had an x-ray done of her knee and we thought she perhaps had had a fracture in her knee or something was wrong. And the doctor told us to Um, just wait over the weekend, and they would get back to us on Monday. And on Monday, I got a call from my pediatrician, not the orthopedic doctor that we'd seen. And I was really, really surprised. And he said, you need to see another orthopedic doctor tomorrow. And I really didn't have time to ask too many questions. I could tell from his voice that it was urgent. So the following day, we went to see an orthopedic doctor, 
And it wasn't until I was standing just outside the door that I saw on the sign, orthopedic oncologist, and I had absolutely no idea. So I brought in my 13-year-old daughter. Fortunately, I stood in such a place as to block that sign. So I didn't want her to see it. But once we were in the room, I could tell that many people had had fairly major procedures. There were people there who were amputees and people in neck braces and back braces. And you could tell that the people there had had some significant surgeries. The doctor could not have been kinder and nicer to Elizabeth, but he did an initial exam. And even from the initial exam, he said, I know that Elizabeth has some growths. So that very day we had, she had some uh, blood draws done and we went and um, later in the day, she had an MRI and she had a CAT scan done and we didn't get home until late that night. Two days later, we went back in and she had a biopsy done of some bone tissue in her right knee or the area right near her knee, her femur. And we found out two days later, much to our shock and surprise that she had this illness called osteosarcoma, which is one of the, which is very rare, only one in every 250,000 children get this illness each year. And it was a very devastating diagnosis. So we went from having a summertime of the girls riding their bicycles and swimming on the swim team to having a very devastating diagnosis. Mm. May yeah. I may I ask? I'm sorry to interrupt. May I ask? Of what, course. What is the age difference? How old is your uh, living daughter, and what is her name? Her name Another. is Olivia, and Olivia. she's 18 months older. Okay. Okay. So that yeah. So this was her her friend, her um, her friend as well as her sister, because it's not not just the sister that is, but is yeah, who she played her playmate. Um, so then th when you, when you took her in initially, was it because her knee was hurting? What was, or had she had an injury that then just didn't heal or what was that first reason of why you took her to the pediatrician for the knee? Her knee was hurting her and simultaneously, she also had some pain in her lungs and later, um, much later we found out that her tumors had spread to her lungs. And that is why she was having trouble when she was breathing, when she was swimming, she was having some pain in her lungs. The first pediatrician we saw before the orthopedic doctor had said that Elizabeth, thought Elizabeth was having growing pains because she had grown from five, six to five, nine in just a year. And he had no idea why she was having pain in her lungs. So our first doctor missed this, um, missed this whole diagnosis. Is this a diagnosis that had it been able to been seen earlier on before it metastasized? Could it, is this a, a type of cancer that is treatable if caught it is, early? Mm -hmm. It is treatable, but it's very, very aggressive. And mm -hmm. very sadly, some children who we met um, on the hospital floors who had had all of the procedures. They had the 10 months of chemotherapy and the radiation and some children had amputations and still, still the cancer came back. It's 
very uh, virulent and very, very hard to stop. Mm. So then from this, then this summer, then going from appointments and so forth, then what was the treatment then that was suggested at that point? Did she go through any type of chemotherapy or was, was it just yeah, too even late to do that? No, it wasn't too late to do that at all. She had um, chemotherapy. She had a very aggressive kind of chemotherapy, and she would usually be in the hospital for a full week. She was very, very um, weak after each each therapy. And so she had chemotherapy for actually 10 months every three weeks. And she actually even had an experimental treatment, which they brought from the Mayo Clinic, which was a really, really wonderful and innovative treatment plan. But sadly, or by the time she had it, her illness had already spread, it already metastasized more, and the experimental treatment only helped in reducing some pain. Very, very sadly, this these growing bone tumors also cause a lot of pain because they are in your bones and your bones don't don't expand the way you know a muscle might expand and contract so it was very very rugged for my daughter elizabeth mm. and for all of you as well that's the thing with these kind of um illnesses and being being myself having been a family my mom died of cancer like having to be on that end of also being the caretakers of somebody that is going through that. It's, it's everybody's going through it, right? The one, only that just one person's physically going through the pain, but emotionally and um, mentally, everything is just draining on the whole family. What did you all do? So the whole process then was 10 months with chemo. How long then from diagnosis till she passed away? And and what is the word passing away, the word you'd like to use around this or what transitioned? What kind of word would you like? Passing away is just, is, okay? is fine. Okay. Well, after 10 months, Elizabeth was incredibly brave. And she told me that she had tried as hard as she could for one year and she really did not believe that she could keep going with more treatments. And the doctors echoed this as well, because it's, as you know, the chemotherapy is so hard on your whole body, not just the area that it's treating. And so we had about six weeks without any treatments. During that time, we had a really, really wonderful, memorable make-a-wish trip to Bermuda. And that was something very, very special. And the people around us couldn't have been kinder to us. And Elizabeth was able to go to the sea, which is her favorite place to be. She was able to sit in the sun and float on a a raft in the sea and just listen to the birds and see the flora and fauna. And that was very, very uplifting for her. Elizabeth actually died in my arms 365 days after she was diagnosed on a warm summer day. Wow. To the day, or to the same, exactly. Exactly to the same day, August 25th. Was she home? Was she at the hospital? Um, What were the circumstances when she transitioned? 
We were home. We had started to have hospice care about a week before that because I could tell she was getting weaker and weaker. And I absolutely wanted her to be home and in her own bed. And my older daughter, Olivia, and I were by her side on her, on her queen-size bed. And my dad, who is a retired physician, was in the room, as were both of my sisters. So it was interesting. It was a whole day long um, time of her slipping away. And having my family there was very, very supportive to us, even though there were times when I was unaware that they were there because I was so focused on Elizabeth. But she died really very peacefully. And I was very grateful for the hospice care that we received and that she was able to die at home uh, in my arms. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I know it's not easy to retell. And um, I also know that it's part of that journey to share, right? And that every time we share it, it could also just be, again, part of that grief journey as well. So I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I'm sure more of these details are also in the in the book. Let's Let's talk about the aspect of the tools that you had in that grief journey in those in that year as a family did you receive any type of support for anticipatory grief support as a family or anything like that from the hospital and did you receive any support after uh, or from your community around what kind of grief support was accessible to you I was very fortunate. I had, um, we had a therapist at the hospital. The hospital where she was treated was very, very aware that the whole family is impacted greatly with an illness, with an illness for a child. We also, I also had a therapist who I saw uh, who helped me enormously just with starting, as you say, anticipatory grief and Slowly, I I had to let in that Elizabeth might not make it, and that was just excruciating for me, really almost debilitating. But I could be sort of slowly nurtured along. And I had a close group of six girlfriends who would do amazing things for me, not only bring me meals, but drive me because there was a time when I was in shock and I really wasn't able to drive safely. And they would bring my daughter Elizabeth and me to hospital appointments. And also they even spent nights um, by Elizabeth's bedside in the hospital. I would spend three or four nights in a row there But as you probably know, one cannot have a good night's sleep in the hospital. You're woken up very frequently. And one of my girlfriends then offered to come and spend the night um, with Elizabeth. And that was wonderful for me because I could go home. I could spend some more quality time with my daughter, Olivia, and I could rest. And I really needed the rest to be able to recharge the best that I could. So my friends were enormously supportive, and and as was my church community. I was very very fortunate. That that is um, 
so beautiful that you had that and that you had the support of your friends. And it's so interesting because some of the times as we're supporting some somebody that's going through grief, we don't know what to do, right? We feel so helpless. Yet the little that little action that your friend did of offering to be her to stay the night at the hospital just so you could get a good night's sleep, that was, you know, something so simple that we could all do at those times, right? Yet sometimes we don't all think about it. So that was so thoughtful of her that she uh, offered that. So beautiful. Yes. And if if other people are in a caregiving role, just simple things like we had to drive into a city and it's always really hectic drive and parking is close to impossible. Just being able to offer a friend a ride to the hospital or um, a ride to an appointment, if even if it's not in a hospital, just takes a layer of stress away. Because that part too of that, emo- what you were mentioning of how you are emotionally and driving, how dangerous that is to right? And especially if you've just been from an appointment in which you've gone through chemo and seen your child go through that and then having to drive yourself back home uh, can be extremely hard, you know, to keep it kind of together. So that is that you're right. That is something so simple that we can also do of offering a ride to somebody that's going through these kind of uh, this kind of situation. Now, what kind of um, what kind of things did you do with Olivia um, during that year? And how, how did, what part did she play? And also did she, would she go then to chemo with her sister? Uh, how was her role there as a sister as well? Well, it was, she did the very best that she could. She frequently, after a school day, she was a freshman in high school, would go to Boston. If she could get a ride with a friend, I would have already been there. She was starting a new high school and we had been in a different town with a much, much smaller middle school. And then all of a sudden she went to a big regional high school. So it was a huge transition for her. Uh, Anyway, the year would have been a big transition. And she did her very best to integrate into a new school. And she tried her very best to get good grades and do the best that she could. But it really tore her up to see her sister so weak Uh, One thing they did, which was very simple, but when Elizabeth was home, they would watch their favorite programs like Friends. They would find things on the television that made them laugh, and they would just do their silly antics. They would just be their sister sister time together. Mm. That was really, there was no one big activity that they could do because Elizabeth was so weak, but just being together was uh, really soothing, I think, for both Mm. of them. That's wonderful. Yeah, it's just the being, right? Just being there is like just sometimes being it's there. just that being, just being, and being still yourself and maintaining a little bit of that normalcy per se. You know that relationship um, that that is also very uh, soothing for the soul, right? Of the person that's going through something hard as well as the family. Now, what was then? Um, the steps you took after she passed away, uh, going through that, you mentioned in the email when you reached out to share your story, that it was something you struggled with a lot in your grief journey. Would you like to 
go into that a little bit of what it is that was either lacking in that grief journey or at what, or, yeah, basically, yeah, just go, go into that before I just lose myself in my words trying to, <laughs> to articulate correctly. I felt almost physically disabled after the, she died. I found it very, my heart was often racing and I found it difficult to do even the simplest things like to go to the grocery store and inevitably I would walk by something like her favorite brownies uh, that they had for sale there that I used to put in her lunchbox and I would leave there sobbing and leave all my groceries in the cart. Sometimes it was very hard because I'd see people I know and I, I had to make a very quick assessment. If the people I saw who I thought would be understanding and who could handle my grief might give me a big hug in the aisle. Other times I thought I can't explain what I'm feeling to these people and I would go down a different aisle. So in many ways, the simple things were very difficult. But slowly, I found that my friends, again, were incredibly supportive and comforting to me. And they started to invite me sometimes over for dinner, sometimes to go for a swim in a pond, sometimes to visit them in a different location. And I started to see in the outside world that the world world was going, continuing to go on as much as I thought it might, it might stop that very day that Elizabeth died. And I also started to, after about six months, I went back to work, which was, which was initially very, very hard for me, but was the best thing for me to do. I had to support my family. And also at work, I wasn't seen as a bereaved mother. I was seen as a colleague. So even though there were days that I didn't really have the energy for work, it was actually very helpful for me to return to work. I continued my counseling. Counseling helped me enormously. And my counselor suggested that I go on a silent retreat. And I went to an Episcopalian monastery where the brothers were very, very loving and kind. And it was next to a wide tidal river. And there was about 100 acres of land. And I would just walk in the woods, walk along the shoreline of the river. And I started to find moments and places of comfort and peace. And Going forward, nature is, some, is a place that really helped me, walking along the shoreline, looking at the sea, uh, being on top of a mountain and looking out where I could see that life went on for me and life will continue after me. I found enormously comforting that I was part of an eternal life and I could bring that home with me after having those experiences. And since then, just taking walks with my golden doodle dog in the woods or spending some time with my husband, just being together. We don't need to do some particular activity just to be together um, was comforting, too. You, keep, you mentioned your golden doodle. I have a golden doodle as well. And she has been my, my therapist uh, <laughs> since my mom passed away, that she, she was her, her, I tell, I've, People that are listening to the story have already listening to this podcast have heard this story many a times already, but her pickup day was uh, the 
uh, from her breeder was the day that was going to be my mom's first birthday since her passing. It was not, we didn't pick that date. The breeder did, not us. So it was like her gotcha day is my mom's birthday, Mm -hmm. her first heavenly birthday. So it was like the timing could have not been more perfect because like you said, it's like walking in nature like was probably one of my biggest therapies as well just having and and of course taking a dog out you kind of have to because if you have to right uh there so they really do help a lot but you didn't have you've only had recently your dog or has your dog been in your life for many years many years i in fact um i had one dog for 10 years and so during the the previous um 10 years I had an incredibly sensitive golden doodle mm-hmm. dog who could tell when I was feeling down and he, even as a puppy, he would be so quiet and just be next to me or he'd be all frisky and fun. And that would be great. Cause that would just pull me outside. Yeah. Um, this dog sadly died of cancer um, three years ago. And we have a new golden doodle dog who's the same way, very sensitive to my moods and also plenty frisky. So uh, I do get out and about a lot with her. That's wonderful. There, the, nature is so beautiful. And how you describe that of just observing and knowing that life does continue, even though we feel it's ended right in those moments, but we see it, we see it in the sunrise and a sunset, like it's constantly changing before us, right? Like we go to, you know, it's like every day it's something new and shifting and it it, there is um that hope there of that continuation talking about that how did your religious beliefs play a part in your spiritual beliefs and what you had been brought up to believe about death play a part in your grief journey for a while i did not go to church i didn't understand why a child would die. I just, I couldn't grasp it. I wasn't angry so much as dismayed. And I slowly began to realize that I believe that God was suffering with me as well. And that I wasn't alone on this journey. I started to have times and places of not feeling alone on this journey, that there was a spiritual presence with me, by me, supporting me. And I slowly returned to church. I started singing in a choir, which was Mm -hmm. a very good way for me to re-enter church because I had a community within a community and I had something to do. I found it almost painful just to sit in a pew by by myself or with my husband and have a lot of people looking at me. So I liked actually the singing. I liked to return actively with... um, and singing also was rejuvenating. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've done a lot of singing, but it brings a lot of oxygen into you. And if you've been singing for an hour, you really feel better after you've been singing. Mm-hmm. And so, again, sort of like returning to work, I had no idea that this would be so helpful for me. But my the people that I was singing with and the choir were just wonderful. And it really, it really helped me along on my journey. Mm. So, so far of what I've heard of the tools that you've mentioned throughout this journey, some of them have been for sure 
the family around you, the community, the um, your walks in nature, and returning to work and having some kind of rhythm and uh, schedule into your life, kind of woven into your life, and then reintegrating into your community life and your church through the choir. That Those are some of these tools that you used in your journey, and each of them served a different purpose in this in this path. So when did your writing come into play as your next tool for grief for, uh, yeah, for your mourning process? I was going to mention that my writing started early on. I started writing when Elizabeth was in the hospital and I wrote by her bedside. I found that there was two things going on. There was so much information that you'd be given on a daily basis. And a lot of times the terms that I would hear would be new terms for me and it would be very hard to remember them. So if I wrote them down, it helped. And then I could go back when a doctor or a nurse returned to the room and I could say, can you please explain this to me? Or can you please explain what types of chemotherapy you'll be using or what this surgery will do and what her recovery time will be. So for practical reading reasons, writing was extremely helpful, but also for emotional reasons. I wrote down my anxieties. I wrote down my hopes. I wrote down our small victories. I wrote things that I otherwise would have kept inside and not been willing to share with the outside world. That's something that I do. I internalize a lot. And I found that writing released a lot of the thoughts that I had trapped inside. I continued to write after Elizabeth's death. I wrote on a, on a daily basis and it helped me enormously just capture what I was feeling. And somehow each time I wrote, I felt unburdened. Mm. I had shifted thoughts that were inside me to being on the paper and what I did as I was preparing to write my book is I went back and I read many of my journal entries and I slowly started to map out a book in my mind and I continued to write some of what I would, when I was writing some chapters, it was of course very, very difficult, but it was also cathartic for me. I also started to see some themes and it helped me to frame what happened to Elizabeth and to give it some structure. And in some ways, I could find some meaning uh, of the journey that she was on and the journey that I had been on. Hmm. What was one of these uh, aha kind of realizations of that journey? Why do you feel your family went through something so hard? Well, it's, or I will never you know. Learn from having gone through, let me, let mm. me, what shifted in you that's different uh, faith now, who, you know, who faith is now based on having been through something so hard? Well, I realized that many people go through very hard things. It doesn't always happen, fortunately, to a child. But after being in the hospital, I saw that there were many children who had either debilitating illnesses or they had um, a critical illness 
or they had something that was going to be lifelong and was going to sadly or difficultly change their life in some way. And I saw some amazing parents that had readjusted their, their expectations for their child. And they knew that their child was going to have a good life and a full life, but probably quite different than what they first imagined. So I saw some parents really still embrace life. And that was um, very hopeful for me. And I just started to look at life as a whole and know that loss is part of life. It's not separate from life. It, I experienced it at a, young, at a young age. I was about 40. But loss is part of life. And to know that you can hold both sorrow and joy together. And that slowly, slowly dawned on me that I would always miss Elizabeth enormously. But she taught me a lot about grace. She handled her illness extraordinarily well. And she did things like when she was in the hospital, she would get in her wheelchair, pull up her the hood of her um, sweatshirt and put on a baseball cap and go into rooms with patients, children who had just arrived. And she would explain things like medical terms to them in a way that they could understand. And people would come to me in the hallway and say, I was so afraid when we first came here, but your daughter's winning smile and the way she was really helped alleviate a lot of our fear. And we're so very grateful. And I just realized by watching Elizabeth's actions that her compassion had grown enormously. She really went from being a 13-year-old to a very, very wise 14-year-old. And I've also learned in life that compassion, I believe, is one of the greatest things that we can contribute to the world. If we can be aware that many people are suffering, perhaps we don't see it on the outside, but we don't know their lives. And if we can show kindness and compassion, we will hopefully make some people's lives just a little bit better. Oh, gosh. The audience does not know that you are seeing me right now. As I'm like, when you were telling her story, her wheeling, going into the different rooms right now and, and being, you know, kind of being that motherly figure now to these children that are coming in and explaining everything that she already knew as she had already been through that. Um, what, uh, so beautiful, just so beautiful. That image of her just taking that onto herself, that maturity too, that I see sometimes, uh, so much in children that have been through a lot, like they, like you said, like from that 13 to that 14, that going through something like that made her mature in a way so quickly. Right. Uh, cause even taking that, making that decision 10 months after her journey with chemo of just stopping it, that's such maturity as well. So, and not just mental maturity, it's an emotional and spiritual maturity that is, uh, admirable. Absolutely. So those are some, just by watching my daughter, I learned so very much about life and accepting what comes our way. And sometimes it is very, very rugged. But if we can accept what happens, it doesn't mean that um, 
it won't be hard. But I don't want to be someone who either blames or rages in life. Elizabeth would not want me to be like that. She would want me to embrace life again and to go back and to be with life. And I love being with children. And uh, I started to work. I left the job where I was working and I started to work for a school as the director of communication where all the children have learning disabilities. Mm. And it meant so much to me to be working really on their behalf and to see how much they grew and they changed when their confidence grew as they learned more about their learning disabilities and they learned different strategies for how to do their work, their schoolwork, and their confidence would grow. And I felt very good about spending my time and my effort um, on that mission. Mm-hmm. Being a, 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 contribu- a contribution uh, to somebody else's life, just like she was in that hospital setting, being of contribution to other patients as they were going through. Now you do that in your in your work too. Um, can you share with us that first book then that you wrote, the poetry book? Is When did you release that book? That one's already been released? Okay, yes. share about that and what when you started writing... Uh, was it kind of like in your journal that then you turned into a book? Or how was that process of that first book? My first book, um, Facing Into the Wind, was written and published in 2007. I went and looked at a lot of my journals. To start with, I found that it was difficult to write narrative. I found that poetry just evolved very naturally to me. And I draw a lot of metaphors with the natural world. And that to me was the way that I could express my feelings and express the reality that I had been facing. And it just flowed that way. So if people enjoy reading about the natural world and about loss and about healing and grieving, um, my poetry draws people into that world. As far as writing the book that I have now, I was started writing that book about five years or so after I wrote my first book, this, this book, um, Hope is a Bright Star, that will be published tomorrow, is and, an and accumulation. And we're recording this, June, June 8th, as we speak. So June, when you guys listen to this, it's already out there. And then we'll share the where. In my in the little show notes. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Thank you. That's wonderful. Hope is, hope is a bright star. So hope is a bright star. So I felt that I had many lessons to share. I wanted to share Elizabeth's strength, and and I've just shared to you some of the extraordinary things that she did, and the growth and the maturity that she found on her journey. And I wanted to share that people can have great deal of suffering. But it doesn't mean that life will end, and it doesn't mean that you have to live a life either raging at the world or with a lot of anger or with feelings that can really, really pull you down. That if you open your heart and if you open your arms, there will be people who will support you and who will love you and who will care for you. And it's not that every day is an easy day for me, for sure. There are many days that are difficult, especially like anniversary dates. But I have found different strategies for those dates. For example, on the first anniversary of Elizabeth's death, I planted a garden with a really dear girlfriend. 
And we had um, my older daughter, Olivia, and my sister, Sarah, helped. And we had two strong men to pull out all these old ewes and errant roots. And then I, then one, my friend Lisa came up with a van full of plants that we had discussed earlier because we had planned out this garden. And we spent all day in the garden planting, weeding, um, bringing in new soil. And it was so rejuvenating and really made me feel closer to my daughter, Olivia, and my sister, Sarah, because we'd shared something almost sacramental. It, it just felt extraordinarily beautiful on that day. And I find that I, one other activity that I do on an anniversary date was with another friend. There's a pond near us that is quite large and it takes about an hour and a half to swim the circumference. But my friend and I do that on, on the anniversary of her death. And I always feel rejuvenated by doing that. I don't feel tired by it. I feel restored by it. Elizabeth was a very good swimmer and I feel closer to her when I do that. So I found activities to do that help me. So on the anniversary dates, I don't dread them. I make a plan so that I can go forward through them. Mm. That's so perfect because you already have something that you're going to be doing because sometimes what ends up kind of creating that anxiousness and anticipation sometimes the day before of a certain special date is the not knowing how we're going to feel that day, right? So by you already having a plan of something you're going to do, whether like you mentioned, either swimming, the lake, or planting the garden like you did in her first anniversary. You already have something that you're doing. And and it's, again, connecting back to nature, which is one of the many tools that reminded you of this continuation and of life and connecting you to her um, as well. Oh, Absolutely. Beautiful. So beautiful. So in your book, do you share then a, a lot of this about your journey? I do. I share about my journey. I share about the times that times and places that I found comfort and peace. I share about my friends who supported me enormously through my transitions. And I share the hope that I found that, as I mentioned, life can go on and life can be good again. And you can even find joy in life. You find that you can, you can carry both sorrow and joy. One doesn't have to be exclusive of the other. And through my marriage, um, it's my second marriage. Now I have a stepchildren and grandchildren and they bring me enormous joy. And I feel if I had closed up and not reached out, I would not have gotten married again. And I probably wouldn't know the joy of having stepchildren and grandchildren in my life. Mm. And one other thing that I did is I decided that writing was so beneficial to me that I wanted somehow to give back to the hospital where Elizabeth was cared for. So I went on uh, to a committee called the Family Advisory Council and I proposed having a journal writing program there. And they asked to see some research. And there actually is quite a lot of research done about journal writing being beneficial to one's well-being. Mm -hmm. And I shared some of this research with them. And they said that would be terrific. 
So I started on Tuesdays afternoons to go into the floors where Elizabeth was treated and to bring journals. At first, I thought maybe the parents would meet me in a, in a, like a family room, but most parents don't want to leave their child's bedside. So I actually go into the rooms. I talk with them about the benefits of journal writing. I have journals that I give to them as gifts. And I've had an extraordinarily positive response to both parents, grandparents, siblings, and the slightly older children, um, like 13 and, and older. And I both talk about how writing can help really alleviate stress, but I also encourage children to write about favorite places, favorite times. I encourage them to write stories, ways to bring their mind away from being in a hospital room to being in the outside world. And this has been extraordinarily rewarding for me. And when I find that I'm leaving and someone has a smile on their face and sometimes they start writing before I even leave the room, I know in some small measure I've helped someone on that day. Keep pay paying it forward. And you, you wouldn't be offering this had you not gone through this yourself and having used journaling as this tool for yourself. So that's, again, that, that ripple effect that there is, right, in our own learnings and how we pass down the torch to others as well and, and their own journeys as well. So beautiful, Faith. Thank you so much for sharing. Is there anything else you'd like to share with the listeners? We will uh, share your website down below. Your book will be found on your website or there are links on your website, Amazon, what way? Yes. Um, my, if you go to my website, there are links there. My website is Faith Wilcox, W-I-L-C-O-X, narratives.com. It's also available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes & Noble. It's available in independent bookstores. And if the independent bookstore doesn't have it on hand, they can order it. Um, so you can find it uh, you can find it in a lot of places. I also recorded an audio book, so you can have it in, in Audible, uh, many, many different places to find an audio book, wherever you like to get your audio books, um, it will be available. How exciting. Is there, do you think you have a third book? There's two. Do you think you have a third book in you as well? I've, it, it looks like something, it's kind of like when people, you know how the people that get tattoos, I don't have any tattoos, but I've heard like people that get tattoos, they get one, they get two, they get three, they keep going. I think with authors, it tends to be that way, right? There's so many books that keep going. So are there more books in you? There very well might be more books in me. I continue to write. I continue as, you know, my life's journey and there very well might be right now. Um, I'm just thrilled to have this one be launched and hope that it can help people who are on the journey of grieving and healing. Wonderful. Thank you again so much for sharing. It's been an honor to hear your journey and to listen to Elizabeth's story and her courage, her compassion, her generosity, her grace, um, so many attributes and, and virtues that she has uh, res resembled in her life and that now you carry on in yours. So thank you. Thank you. It's been a joy to speak with you. Thank you again so much for choosing to listen today. I hope that you can take away a few nuggets from today's episode that can bring you comfort in your times of grief. 
If so, it would mean so much to me if you would rate and comment on this episode. And if you feel inspired in some way to share it with someone who may need to hear this, please do so. Also, if you or someone you know has a story of grief and gratitude that should be shared so that others can be inspired as well, please reach out to me. And thanks once again for tuning in to Grief, Gratitude, and the Gray in Between podcast. Have a beautiful day.